the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Beavis as the Beaver. And this is episode 279. Ethereal before the shark. Yeah. And this is Tony Bemis. And Tom Lawrence. And uh, everybody else, or Mary and Phil, are unable to be here, so it's just the two of us. Yeah. It's, sometimes summer's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's been two months since I've been on the show. And if you've been gone for two months. The other people were available, and uh, now it's Tony. I think I feel consistent, but... I don't know. I'm obsessive, and I live down the street, and I don't go anywhere. <laughs> right. And we record at your office. So and we record at my office. You kind of need to be here. You'll find me here anyways. Well, you can have a key, but you'll find me here anyways on a Sunday morning because this is uh, my backup mornings are generally on Sunday. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, overly obsessive uh, about, you know, you do all the backups. I take them off site, copy them to the hard drives, and... <laughs> yeah, it's important. Yeah, you got to get it done. Look, I, I see disasters every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm reminded on a regular basis what can go wrong. <laughs> All right. Uh, so so what's been new in the last couple weeks for you? What's been new? So we talked about last time, and to get you up a little bit, too, is uh, I even talked to Tony in almost two months. So, uh, yeah. you know, the, he listened to the show when I was a little bit, you know, I had the server die and everything else. But um, since then, we've gotten more servers because I wanted to do more videos on the XCPNG, which is the open sp- uh, source, completely open source bin of Zen Server. And mm-hmm. so I've created a whole lot of tutorials on that, which has been a whole lot of fun. The uh, Zen Motion and all the features on there, a lot of people just, they were a little dumbfounded that it worked as easy as it did. So I did a whole tutorial on how you can just take running VMs with completely open source software and move them from one machine to another machine with a few clicks of the button and um, picked up some 10 gigabit network cards to make that whole process take only a couple of minutes. Nice. Uh, I did a fun example with FreePBX. I got on the phone with FreePBX, moved the VM, it doesn't drop a phone call while you're moving a VM. Really? Which is impressive. So the only thing it did was kind of funny because I was in the, uh, when you're talking, you know how when you drop packets on VoIP, it makes that little pause noise that yeah. sounds like a robot? That's the only thing that happened. It dropped a couple packets somewhere um, in the voice. So there's like a little, mm. and then it just continues on. It's so brief, you wouldn't think anything of it. But uh, to me, that's one of the like, magical things that has come about. You know what I mean? You've been in technology yeah. as long as I have, and you're just like, you can never picture like running machines, servers, you just pass them along to another server. Right. Like the users keep using and the system stays up. You don't re even reboot it. There's no downtime for this. Uh, so that's been uh, fun demoing all that to people. Cause even though people don't understand VMs, I think this, that's that next level. I know it's been around for a while, but mm-hmm. showing people and of course, putting it in the hands of people with free open source software. Uh, so people can pl- build their little home lab and go, Wow, I can do what the big boys can do in the cloud, and I can do it right here. Right. So that's yeah, kind of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it's been I you know took a little bit of time away from the keyboard a couple weekends where I just disappeared into the woods, as I call it. Yeah. I get on my motorcycle and go off roading, and that's the very low tech side of Tom, where I'm not even. I actually I have a special like those Pelican indestructible cases, I put my phone inside of that because occasionally you fall off motorcycles in the mm. woods and I want to make sure nothing ever gets broke. So I don't even keep it in my pocket, but that also means I'm completely offline, so to speak. And my phone's doing whatever it's doing, but 
I'm very far away from any technology. I don't bother to check it. Like, I'm just going out in the woods. It's there more for in case I fall and I can't get up again. Right. <laughs> I am over 40 now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's mostly there, like, in case of emergency. It also helps because if I fall off the bike, uh, it won't be broken. I can just open up the Pelican case and be like, hey, honey, remember that worst case scenario thing I talked about? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you still got to have a backup plan even when you're going out in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, uh, my uh, my unplug is going camping. Yeah. You, so every year I go camping uh, at least two weeks with my family. And uh, so we went camping uh, a few weeks ago, 4th of July, uh, and then we're going to go again in, uh, in August. But uh, I was forced to go offline completely. Because your my phone. phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my wife was handing my, my phone, and we were transferring boats. And uh, as she handed my phone, I she like let go of it before my hand was actually there to grab it, and it fell. And it looks like just a couple of uh, breaks on the LC or on the glass, but it completely blew out the LCD. Uh. And when you can't see anything on your phone, you can't. I had Bluetooth turned off, so oh. I couldn't like Bluetooth to it. Uh, you can't turn on the USB to pull data off That's of it. Rough. You can't do anything with it. Although it'll sit there and my alarm goes off at 5.30 a.m. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I, it does. And I can't shut it off. Wow. So uh, so I ended up um, getting, uh, so it was a Nexus 6P. And I, I got a, uh, uh, a Pixel uh, XL. Oh. Just Pixel 1 XL. That's a nice phone, though. Used, yeah. And it's, <clears throat> it's in really good shape. Bought it from a guy. That, I, I got a new case for it, um, a new screen protector. But... Uh, but I like it. Yeah, so far it's been really nice. Yeah, I I was always happy with my Nexus. I love my Pixel. Um, you know, as much as I'm an open source advocate, I know someone's like, but you're not using a Libre phone. I'm like, look, Google makes it practical. I'm embedded in their ecosystem. Yeah, but it works yeah. so well. The photos I take on it, I, you know, I was out. I actually, I did, I did get my phone out yesterday when I was out in the woods to take some beautiful photos of where I went and stuff like that. And I'm like, it's just such a nice job. Like, I don't have to carry a camera or anything with me. It's just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what's crazy about it. And yeah, I don't even my SLR broke and I didn't replace it. Um, mm-hmm. I was pretty angry when my SLR broke. I don't know what caused it to die. It wasn't that old, didn't have that much use, but it died. I looked up fixing it as three hundred fifty dollars, and I'm like, no. Wow. Yeah, Canon wants a lot. I mean, it's a three year old camera, but still, Canon wants quite a bit to fix it. I'm like, in the three years, it's hardly been used because it's only used professionally, yeah. hardly ever used outside, and it just died. Hmm. So, but I thought, why do I need it? Like, I haven't used it to take photos. I was using it more for video than photos uh, for my YouTube stuff. But now I'm like, my phone does everything. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how much it does. And uh, it, that was the other thing. I got an SLR, you know, a year ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to justify taking pictures with the SLR unless I need, like, just a stable, like, portrait. Yeah. Photo. But your photos but. from when you travel overseas were pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I, the SLR is superior. Um, it does have a better picture quality. It's just less convenient than the phone. So oh, yeah. I do know it is a better medium for stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, traveling overseas, uh, so when I went to China for yeah. two weeks to teach, and I took my uh, my Canon SLR, uh, and I didn't bring a tripod. Because I thought I'd just snap and yeah. walk around. and um, But then when I was there, I'm like, I found some techniques I wanted to try out. Uh, and e, uh, uh, I don't, 
can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, it's HDR that you can do oh, from yeah, the yeah. SLR. Yes. Um, exposure bracketing. Yeah, e- exposure yeah. bracketing. Or AEB, yes. automatic exposure bracketing. Yes. So I set one of the user program modes to to do that. Oh, cool. And then when, so when you uh, set the, uh, put it for a timer, like two-second timer, mm-hmm. It'll it'll go through all three pictures. So what what it does is um, you it takes three pictures at different exposures. So you have something that's overexposed or slightly overexposed, slightly underexposed, and then what you would normally see. And then you use software on your on your computer like to merge them together to merge them together. And then it takes the bright parts and uh, like gets rid of that, and then puts in what you would. Uh, uh, and it does the merging, so it yeah. looks a lot better. You get it's you get a lot more dynamic range. Exactly, <clears throat> and that's what HDR stands for: is high yeah. dynamic range. And uh, if you want to learn further about this, it's really interesting. Um, if you look up how much dynamic range the human eye has, how much dynamic range film has, and then how much dynamic range a camera has, you'll start seeing the significant differences. And the reason some people here in 2018 are still shooting in film, there's a lot more, uh, the difference between light and shadow, which we see very fluidly with our eyes, uh, cameras, especially the digital ones, including one on your phone, have a very hard time with. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is actually what, if you're not familiar with the way Pixel 2, why the camera's so good on there, they actually started charging the couple devices that actually pick up the sensor at different rates. That's how it picks up. They automatically shoot in high dynamic dynamic range by actually taking the sensor and taking alternating rows, if I'm not mistaken, and they charge what uh, controls how much a sensor can see is the charge couple device on it. The CCD Mm. sensor is a charge couple device. The level of voltage you put into it determines the sensitivity of it. So you increase voltage, increases sensitivity, but of course increased voltage comes with noise in the potential there. So that's how they do is then they use a logic to reassemble the three brackets. That's actually right. how the Pixel 2 takes a photo. And that's yeah. why the it's pseudo-increased by software. Uh, computational photography is actually the term, which I think mm. we're going to see more and more of in the future, um, yeah. where that becomes as part of the camera integrated versus, like you said, you can use software outside there mm-hmm. uh, to do it. Yeah. It's really cool, though. Right. And that's where a lot of people, like, you go try to take a picture with your phone, and you're like, why is it so slow? Why doesn't yeah. it just, like, snap and continue on? It's because it's actually doing the three exposures yep. at it's once. doing three exposures. The, and, and then it merges them together for you. Um, is one of the one of the things that makes an SLR superior, especially when you get into what they refer to as the full-frame sensors, like the uh, there's a company called Hasselblad. The body of a Hasselblad, not the lens, costs about $30,000. Whoa. Yeah, they're very expensive, but the reason people like them, the larger physically you make the sensor, um, due to the level of technology we're at, the more light you can let in and the better control you have. Like, you can get a crisper image. Mm. Think about a phone. The sensor is about one half the size of a phone on a Hasselblad. It's that big. So think about how tiny the phone sensor is. So you requires more trickery to get that visual dynamic range out of a phone than it does a Hasselblad because they're starting with this monster of a sensor. Yeah. So they can do a lot more. And just from density, they also, I forget how many, meg, I think they're 100 megapixel. Mm. So they shoot at super high resolutions. Um, and one of the advantages of uh, high resolution, actually the camera over my shoulder was a Canon camera for our studio. It shoots at 4K and down samples to 1080 on purpose. It doesn't even support 4K export because if you start with four pixels 
to determine the color science of them in four pixels and bring them down to one, you have four data points brought down to one so you produce a more accurate photo. Oh, That's wow. how a lot of that works. So people, what do I need a 100 megapixel photo for? Well, you don't. They take more data, downsample it down, but because we have more data points to start with, we end up with a better output. Hmm. I've looked into, I've I dug into it before I even bought this camera because I thought, why don't I buy a 4K? And I'm like, why does Canon want so much money for these studio cameras and why don't they output in 4K? What makes them so amazing? And right. now I've learned. That's it. Yeah. I, I spent, I, there was a rabbit hole of two days of reading that Tom, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop here because I can keep going on about it. It became like, wow, these are some smart people that did this. That's really clever. Wow, this is cool. And next thing you know, that's how everything's hyperlinked. The internet's so full of information now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So this was, this turned into a camera rant. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, uh, but more on the travels, you know, I can get into that more uh, Yeah, I think show. we're going to do a follow-up episode yeah. about uh, firewalls and what it's like to have internet in China. I think that's a that's a show into itself. And I, Phil said he would love to be included on that. So we're, we'll, uh, we'll do that a fresh next episode when... Uh, yeah. We, and we may do something that's off schedule for that, too, uh, based on because it's been tight with trying to get everyone here on a Sunday morning because of mm. people traveling on the weekend. So we'll pick one. We'll do we'll do a fresh looks and off one. Plus, we are going to do a fresh looks soon with Michael Lucas, too. Yeah, so that's that's all the news stuff we have in, related to the SMLR podcast. <laughs> awesome. That's right. Uh, all right. So I think we should move on to uh, feedback. We want to hear from you. Call 734-258-7009 or email show at smlr.us with your feedback and questions. All right, so feedback. I saw one email come through. Um, the uh, SSH? Yeah. Yep. That's the only one I've seen as well. I thought that was pretty cool. I'll go ahead and read it. Just want to let you guys know I enjoy the show a lot. I'm really looking forward to the proposed SSH key management and type overview episode. Maybe it could also cover options to key distribution, several machines, different users, admins, and regular users. And it would also be interesting to see how you go about this in different size organizations and organizations where not all users are too experienced with the matter. Now, uh, this is something me and Phil talked about and because... Yeah, I think Phil finished the book. I don't know if you finished it yet. And I'm reading. I'm going to read it before we interview Mike Lucas. Is SSH key mastery, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the big chapters that became enlightening was his managing SSH at scale. And he talks about how to deploy it to thousands of systems and things like that. And uh, you know, there's the simple ways like of when you do the uh, cloud stack when you spin things up, already having your SSH key in there. So every right. replicated copy I can just log into without passwords. Uh, but Michael Lucas, one of the things, and don't quote me on exactly because I have not read the book, but me and um, some of the tech people were talking about, apparently there's a way to distribute it in a DNS text record, I believe. Yeah, your public key. Yeah. 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 And then having it pull automatically from a DNS text record, your public key, and put it in there. That's, yeah. I remember Michael Lucas uh, talking about that That's before. a clever way to do that. That's, yeah. um, you know, I don't know exactly the functionality, but that's what we'll cover in that episode. Uh, we thought it might be a fun Fresh Looks episode just to do SSH, like, because there's so, uh, there's enough that Michael wrote a book on it. So we right. can certainly do an episode Two on books, it. Actually. <laughs> Two books on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And technically, the, the name of the book is SSH Mastery. Yeah. SSH Mastery. And, uh, yeah. And so a second edition came out uh, this year, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, February 6th. So. And by the way, I see it says, uh, from the Netherlands, um, 
Michael Lucas's books get translated into many, many languages, so it mm. may even be in your native language. Uh, so that's that's something we talked about um, when we did. There's an interview with Michael Lucas on uh, my YouTube channel, and we talked about how uh, people feverently have interpreted these in like all kinds of languages, like lots of different languages, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. So if I, as I get that, sometimes people as a question of like, is there a translated version of things I've covered? I'm like, but it's also, I don't know, I, that most people end up learning English. Thank you for taking the time to learn English. Right. Um, but it would be, I, I think it's nice if we can translate things into other languages. I guess it's probably easier with books than my uh, YouTube videos. Because mm-hmm. I've had people offer to transcribe it. I, I authorize it. So I'm like, go ahead. But I can't. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even like transcribing English. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see any other feedback. Is That's there... all I saw, too. All right. So moving on to news. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. Distro Fever. It's been so long, I forgot the order of our show. I know. (laughs) It's been months, months and months. What do we got here? New version of Scientific Linux distribution. Yeah. So that's still being updated. What do we got in here? All kinds of little... Arco Linux? Arco Linux. It's Arch-based. I've never heard of that one. That's interesting. There's something, 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 something. Well, I was trying to remember what came out that I found interesting. You know, I guess it's not out yet. I guess it's the Debian 9.5. It's mm. not yet, but it's coming soon. I was reading through notes and things like that. Because all my servers are Debian-based, so yeah. I keep up with that. Yeah. I try to keep all my servers up to date. My my servers are running a Ubuntu server, and... Um, I, I updated from 16.04 to 18.04, and it broke it. Yeah. Man, that was... It was so, uh, well, uh, like three months ago, I upgraded from 14.04 to 16.04, and it was flawless. So I'm like, I'll just do it again. Uh, <laughs> nope. Phil uh, helped me with... Um, I had one that there was some big changes we had to make mm-hmm. so because we were running on Debian 7. Now, nothing on it... Because it runs a special program, nothing on it was direct public facing, so I wasn't really worried about the security implications, but I knew I eventually I should. Yeah. And there was no known security vulnerabilities, but I tried upgrading it broke, and Phil knew the trick of getting from 7, because that's where we switch from uh, to the init versus system V. Oh. And there's some trickery that has to be done. And the nice thing is, going forward is easy. We only moved it to, yeah, we, we couldn't move directly to 9 either. We tried that, it broke. You can't go from seven to nine. So we had to go seven, eight, nine. But it uh, went. Yeah, one, it's probably, there's a conversion going most to Most of the eight. fixes occur there. And once yeah. you fix eight, eight to nine was a lot smoother. So nice. Yeah, yeah that whole system V in it. And, uh, and, and yeah. System D. Yeah. System D. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, I mean, it, as long as it works, it works. Yeah. That's it works my now. Attitude. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work when Tom tried it. Right. <laughs> Uh, I upgraded my uh, Linux Mint to 19. Mm. And, you know, uh, previously Mint never gave, like, upgrade paths. They said you just should nuke and reload. Yeah. And uh, this time they said, no, no, you can you can upgrade. Oh, okay. But then there's, like, a 10-step thing to upgrade. It's ah. not just a quick go. Um, you have to change, like, the login manager and a couple different things. That's uh, kind of a pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was step by step. It wasn't that yeah. hard. Um, That's and then something it went I gotta and, say. Ubuntu has always done a good job of their upgrade yeah. paths in place. Upgrades Ubuntu similarly have worked really, really well for me. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, generally, until generally. <laughs> until you're running something on a server and well, yeah, but, except for Tony's server, <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, so uh, no, it, I did the upgrade, and now uh, it, it's running pretty good. You know, it's on the uh, 1804 LTS, and um, and I like it. I'm still running Pop! OS on both my desktop and my laptop. I switched to that, and I have had an absolute wonderful time. Nice. The only bug report I have to do is it, on reboot, it changes my default audio output on my desktop. That I don't know mm. why. Yeah. It thinks my Yeti microphone, which does have an audio output, it just thinks that should be the default for no particular reason. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know what makes it favor that one because it's probably because it's USB versus motherboard based, so they yeah. figured you're plugging it in second. Oh. It, I'm. I don't know. I haven't figured. I I got to file the bug report. It's been too lazy because I hardly ever have to reboot my computer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what the low tech version of that is? Hmm. Unplug your microphone when you're not using it. Yeah. I but. use it so much I don't unplug it. Oh yeah. That's yeah. my bigger thing. Like I can't unplug that thing, man. It's in. I because I answer my phone with it and everything else. Like I use it at my desk all the time, mm. and I record things all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But right. It also would screw up because it is set as a default um, audio input because I have three audio inputs, and that's the one I always want default. So I got the webcam mic. It picks up as an input. Mm. The Yeti is an input, and then an onboard has an input, and I always want it to be the Yeti. Yeah, yeah. I know when I screw up because I start recording something, and then I'm like, oh, the audio is terrible. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So uh... – it's time to move on to news this time, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's news. All right. Tech news and views. All right. So do you want to start up? We will. So uh, if you didn't catch a hammer, did we see it being a show? Um, Ethereal Before the Shark is a reference to the fact that Ethereal was released 20 years ago today, which later became Wireshark. So that's yeah. just a little Today in InfoSec note, which is pretty cool. Yeah. That's a long time. You were telling me about this... Uh at a convention you were at, they yes. were doing some packet captures. Oh, yeah. I remember, I mean, this is before Wireshark. We used to do, uh, because just nothing was encrypted, and that's just the way we accepted the internet to work. There was so many cool tools that people had based on Ethereal, and I wish I remember the name of it. And obviously, it's been since 2002 since I ran that, so 16 years ago. Occasionally, I forget what the name of a tool is, because the tool is long deprecated because it couldn't, you know, see inside of encryption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would automatically reassemble all the packets and drop them into their corresponding directory. So you had a JPEG directory, a GIF directory, an uh, EML directory, because it would reassemble emails and put them in um, Thunderbird format mm-hmm. as a so you could actually open them. And what we do is you would just watch the packet stream sniffing, and you could grab and throw everything into these folders and collect all the data that people were doing. And even had a passwords folder, so it would go and collect all passwords that were sent for people going out to their email clients. Wow. Because back in the day... No one thought at all about this. All the email was just sent unencrypted, like the password, the username, and password. It was this is 2002. There was no, maybe they existed on an RFC piece of paper somewhere, but was never implemented. I don't know when we got uh, encrypted email because everything ran over POP 110 for the most part. We popped more than we IMAPped. Right. But even if you IMAPped, you never used the 465. Mm-hmm. I don't know when 465 came around, but. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was around, but uh, yeah, nobody used it. They're like, oh, what's the chance that somebody's going to be listening yeah, to my? Yeah, we used email? to just listen to all. There's so much stuff in there. Wow. So, 
Yeah, that was the original, all the uh, based on Ethereal and the uh, packet capture drivers that came with it and everything else. I mean, it was just really fun to play with back then. It's still fun now, um, especially if you're man in the middling something and you have your own SSL search and you want to snip networks, it still works. Right. Yeah. You just have to do a little bit different. And if it's, yeah. please note, you should be doing this on your own network with authorization. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, so this this is a I found a few Linux things that were kind of cool, and go to brow b r o w dot s h, Browse, the modern text based browser. <laughs> this yeah. thing is just fun to play with. It's uh you know Lynx is just not yeah not that great, but you can uh, just point your ssh client to brow.sh so ssh brow.sh no auth needed this service is demonstration in last five minutes and is logged this is actually kind of cool you can play around with a um, terminal based browser it's actually rather clever and i kind of like it because it's lightweight you can browse into things and it um i don't know just got a novel to play with so it definitely definitely pretty cool yeah i can see that work it can be handy on a, a headless server you know that's you're in only running SSH. If I just want to, I think it might be fun if I want to see how a server renders a page and if it renders it properly so I can see something from a client's perspective without actually logging into the machine. So like, hold on, let me log into your Linux box over here. I want to see how your network pulls this data and I can kind of get a view of it that way. Yeah. Also, it might be kind of a fun way. I want to see how it works with some of the web interfaces that we have. Um, because as much as I love a web interface, it's kind of cool just to lock it down over SSH. Don't even have to port forward. I can just SSH in somewhere and browse around a web interface of some device they have, like a printer and things like that. So yeah. I, I, I envision myself using it for that quite a bit. So how, how far does it go? Is it HTML5? Yeah. Wow, that's well, pretty good. Not just HTML5. It actually can render, I believe, um, do it had the list in here, but it was like everything. Yeah, uh, C- CSS3, JavaScript, it renders YouTube. It'll do wow. WebGL. So, wow. Yeah, I, the, the, there's a demo on the site of what it looks like watching a YouTube video with it, which is impressive. That is crazy. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you as a surprise as to what the video is. What's that website one more time? Uh, brow, B-R-O-W dot S-H. You can SSH right to it, SSH brow dot <laughs> S-H. So you can get a demo of it without loading anything. I think this is pretty cool. Uh, you know, we're big fans of the Raspberry Pi. It's been a fun toy for $35, a toy that does powerful things. Uh, Raspberry Pi gets its own app store now. And uh, really? with the latest update, yeah, they have a whole app store to make it easier to install things uh, right through the graphical system. So you can uh, load Raspbian, play around with it, and it's got its own app store, which mm. is just really cool. It's going to make using Raspberry Pis that much easier to get started with. Um, I have an engineering client, and they use Raspberry Pis for some of their testing stuff. And there's something I'm going to ring back to the Raspberry Pi uh, in another article. Actually, I should just jump to it. Say ring back? What's that? Did you say ring back? Ring back. Bring back. Ring back. Ring All back. right. This is cool. So I didn't know this, but are you familiar with USB over IP? Mm, and did I think you know I've it's heard of built it, into I... the Linux kernel? Really? Yes. So Linux mag- Linux-Magazine.com has a great article, being in the show notes, and it's a step-by-step tutorial for connecting, uh, even using, I believe it'll work over standard IP. Uh, you can 
uh, tunnel it over SSH. You can play with it lots of different ways. You can take a device, let's say a Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi does not have to have even drivers for it. It only has to have a physical connection, which Raspberry Pi has USB ports. Mm -hmm. Then you use USB over IP, and it connects directly to your computer. And if you have a reasonably fast network, it works quite well. People wow. have used everything from hard drives to printers. As long as it's it, – you, you're limited by the network speeds. So if you're trying to do this remotely, there's going to be considerations in there. So if you have something like a scanner – probably remotely is not going to work. But people did talk about scanners being able to work and printers and yeah, even local. All, any, yeah, anything yeah. that's um, that requires lower latencies works great on local network. But for remote network, especially like with USB sensors, you could find a sensor, but you're like, well, this sensor is something I need because it works really well, but it does not have drivers in a Raspberry Pi. No problem. It doesn't have to understand the drivers. It's literally forwarding it to you with no drivers. It's mm. just moving because of Linux and the way you can pipe things is essentially how the, that's why it's built into the kernel. It's it's a nothing when you think that's about it. That's cool. Once you think about that level, you're like, oh, yeah, it's just a device. And you can pipe devices across network because Linux. And yeah. now you're just moving it over to your computer, and your computer detects it as a USB device at the kernel level. Huh. Because these are kernel-level drivers, you're just passing the kernel data across, and you can plug in devices. So this has a lot of interesting use cases. Yeah, I could, I could see a lot of uh, uh, out-of-band management yeah. stuff with that too yeah things that don't require high bandwidth but that uh someone had commented on a reddit post that they got it to work with a security dongle which i mm -hmm. thought was really interesting yeah they said as long as the latency is not bad the security dongles because uh, they run uh, persistent queries back and forth i uh, think like thinking like yubikey and stuff like that i don't know if this is a good idea this is one of those because i can the idea of the security dongle is not to publicly post it across the internet so people can use it obviously but right. the concept's pretty cool well if you're tunneling it through ssh yeah you then know, your then ssh is pretty it's solid. encrypted. Um, but yeah, my thought was that uh, if you could have uh, like the management port on a, um, you know, on a, a network switch is, yeah. you know, the new ones are all have USB plugs, straight USB really, plug into it. Yeah. So if you screw up something, if the network still runs, but you screw up something on your management, then you can connect in, you know, through yeah. a separate network or something. That actually is kind of neat because, um, for example, the NetGate devices that we like uh, that run PFSense, they have a USB on there. And you can even reload them from that USB because they support yeah. the full stack. So you could keep an image on a Raspberry Pi attached to your network and you could put a, a USB expander on it, connect it to all your network switches and kind of build an ad hoc remote push firmware and everything over um, the USB cable. Yeah. That's actually, see? Yeah. We, build, we could build a machine like this. <laughs> <laughs> we can build it. It's all over that. I, I Yeah, there's so many use cases. Um, even locally when, you know, I just I have my switches in the back. Just, just locally being able to get into the console from anywhere is a pretty cool concept. Yeah. So there's so many uses for this. This is such a neat thing. And why did I not know it's been built into the kernel for a long This isn't like they just added it yesterday. This is just an article showing me how to enable a feature. Like, Linux is amazing. There's just... Yeah, The possibilities cool. are endless, and someone hmm. thought, hey, I bet you could do this. <laughs> oh, this is a good article on the Mozilla blog. Dispatches from the Internet Frontier, and it's called The Invisible Tax on the Web Video Codex. Here's a surprising fact. It costs money to watch video online, even from sites like YouTube. That's because about four in five videos on the web today rely on patented technology called H.264 Kodak. 
this has actually been something that's kind of annoying to me because YouTube and them, that was for a while. I, I know they've expanded support since then, but they only wanted H.264. Mm-hmm. And it was a good codec, but all these little things add up quite a bit um, because there's royalty fees for having servers on there. Matter of fact, not everybody knows this, just to have HDMI ports on your computer, there's a royalty fee paid for HDMI ports, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah. I think I do remember hearing It's that. a very yeah. tiny amount. That's why no one really has come up with like this big rally against it. But if you're a device manufacturer, even if it's just a penny for every Raspberry Pi sold with HDMI port, there's a penny or whatever that cost is to going out to those uh, royalty places. This yeah. is um, goes back in with the codex. Uh, there's a big push, and this is what the article's about, is to go all royalty-free codex, which uh, I completely support. And it's the long tail of legacy is the problem. So yeah. we're still pushing ME3s on our site along with – we've been doing the AUG, which we're um, working on what we're going to do in the future with some of that because there's been some changes apparently at archive.org, which caused a delay in getting the last show released. Um, but we prefer open formats, but all the podcast systems want MP3s because their infrastructure was designed on MP3. So right. that's what they're used to seeing. That's what they're used to pulling. And then, yeah. So as much as I love this project and I will support it as best I can, the other reality I have is it ain't going away anytime soon. Uh, but they talk about a new one called uh, AV1, apparently. It's some type of uh, open source one. AV1 mm-hmm. is well on its way to becoming the video alternative to patented video codecs. As of July, as of June 2018, AV1 1.0 specification is stable and available for public use on a royalty-free basis. So that's what the article is summed up with. There's a lot of details about the things in there. It's a short read, but it's a good article and something that not everybody thinks about. Yeah, nice. Now, this is where things went off the rails a little bit. People are up in arms over this. Up in arms because ARM kills off its anti-risk V smear site after its own staff revolts. This is just, I mean, haven't we learned from Microsoft's poorly landed smear campaigns against other companies um, that this is not a good idea? This is not a good tactic. Don't just go smearing your competitors. That's just, Mm -hmm. and create an entire website creating FUD about your competitor. So what happened was some PR people over at the uh, ARM company, decided to put an anti-RISC-V processor architecture type um, website up. So it was all about why you shouldn't use that, like an entire smear site, which is interesting because it had the Streisand effect of people go, this is interesting, and more people learned about RISC-V that didn't know about it, so there's all these good discussions going on. So it completely backfired. and has mm. raised more awareness for their competing architecture. Everyone's like, oh, wow. you're right. wow, there's another architecture type? Well, if they're smearing it, it must be superior. That must be why they're smearing it. So it turned into this um, awesome thing. But then inside the company, the the engineers that run the company go, this is a wrong thing for do. The engineers themselves didn't know that PR was doing this. So they mm. internally said, you must stop this. And then they took down the website. So yeah. it's kind of interesting. Um, there's a story on a register about everything that happened <laughs> and, and how it break down. I like this. Is, Arm actually had some comments to the register. Our intention is in creating a web page to offer considerations around the commercial risk fee based products was to inform a lively industry debate. That's <laughs> what they said. Really? Regretfully, the result was something different. A page that wasn't in line with ARM's collaborative culture. Uh, so we've taken it down. Indeed, many of our own people told us they didn't like it. Yeah, that that's 
they're a huge, if you're not familiar, a lot of the people um, behind ARM are open source advocates and other they contribute to open source projects and things like that. So you have a lot of them are active in the open source community. They're not just engineers working for ARM. That's their day job. So they don't like this weird concept that, you know, maybe we see that in the corporate world, uh, but I just don't understand it in the open source world, like where I got to bash someone else's project. Make your project better. You like this file system better? Cool. Defend your stance on it. Update the code. Tell me why you think it's superior because I asked you but you don't go put an anti the other guy's stuff campaign. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That did lead to one of my favorite comments Google ever had. Uh, and this was Google keeping it classy. Do you remember when Microsoft had their Scroogle campaign and they had shirts that say, I got Scroogled? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, basically talking about how Google was evil and bad, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they asked Google for comment on it when Google was releasing the Android Wear and all this other stuff. They had the best uh, one line ever. They're like, we're glad to see Microsoft's getting into the wearables market. We hope they progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, keeping it classy. That was just, it, it chuckles every time. Uh, and, of course, more attacks at the hardware vulnerability. By the way, ARM's not at risk for this, oh, as far yeah. as I know. At risk for this. Yeah. Uh, play on words. <laughs> Um, another Mary's not here. I got to come up with a pun or two. <laughs> another data leak. Another data leaking Spectre CPU flaw among Intel's dirty dozen of security bug alerts. Uh, Chipzilla prepares for its public patch update. These are more Spectre and Meltdown flaws, and this is why the Spectre and Meltdown uh, patches weren't. Ex- they may have been referred to patches, but if you read the detail, they were mitigations. Um, right. Among the mitigations they did, for example, was in the browsers. They added some random entropy so you couldn't use the timer to figure out the timing attacks, which was allowed. Once you figured out the timing attack, that timing attack would allow you to determine what was the contents of the processor on the adjacent CPUs. So by adding these little bits of random noise in there, that was just a mitigation. Someone has found ways around the mitigation, and then more security researchers have found even more ways to exploit this. Uh, we talked about this last time because it all – I don't know that all of it has been released, but ahead of time, we know in the open source community because we see changes come through. We've seen FreeBSD disabling hyper-threading completely. Right. That was – they. I, uh, the person in charge, his name eludes me right now, but he's in our last show notes um, – he, there's a whole article he said. He goes, I'm under NDA. I can't say why. He goes, I'll tell you I did it because we had to. And uh, mm. this is they had to. It turns out hyper-threading is extremely vulnerable to it. Uh, by sharing a single core to do two things um, supposedly is secure, but as we've determined with all these new flaws, it's not. And there's going to be um, the kind of solution, everything I've read about this is we're going to have to rewrite the way the kernel looks at things. So if Right now, if I run uh, two completely separate processes, theoretically, they could end up in one hyper-threaded core split into two. So the two are completely unrelated processes running in at hyper-threaded core. So one process should not be able to, but through these flaws, could talk to the other one. The solution to it is if you have a secure program running, only its threads go to the adjacent hyper-thread core. That would solve the problem. The problem mm. is nothing's written that way. Right. So... There's a lot of rewriting of the at the software level that helps mitigate this. So I don't know exactly how difficult that is to implement because I don't do that level of programming. Um, 
that's from yeah, deep no stuff. That's like assembly. Right. Uh, I mean, it's going to be in the kernel mode driver. But I imagine there's at least something in the kernel that could be done to say, hey, this program only gets to run on these processors. Mm-hmm. But then how does that even work inside of a, uh, a virtualized system? You know, when you're once you start virtualizing the processors, we're all sharing processors. I have... Well, in, in a virtual system, the processor itself isn't virtualized. So but you see the actual processor on, on VMs. I know, but it, that's um, that's why this gets that much more complicated. How right. do I say don't scone these threads? Because when I look at my VMs, they all have like you know, let's say four to eight cores assigned to them. Cumulatively, the number of VMs I have, adding up all those processors, exceeds the number of logical processors in my and and virtual processors in my system. So there's all kinds of sharing going on. Right. Yeah. So it comes <laughs> down to the hypervisor actually. That yeah. It has to be able to do it also. Yeah. Does it limit the hypervisor, limit a single virtual machine says you have eight cores when you ask for uh, requests, you only get these eight cores. And then there's another sub one inside of that VM that says only these cores and then only these process. This and this is why the Spectre meltdown is causing uh, the cloud prices to go up because mm-hmm. uh, we're losing compute speed. Over every patch they add loses. I think I forget what they said, but some of the big cloud providers said, "Yeah, we're losing like three or four percent." Well, they're running on the margin, so that just increased the cost three or four percent. So right, yeah, because the customer is expecting the same performance. Yep. So then they have to up their processing or add more servers it's, and yeah. Right. And I mentioned it uh, last time. I don't know if you ever had a chance to read the article, but uh, on Serve the Home, they have a great uh, article about moving away from the cloud called Falling from the Sky. Oh. Great article. And uh, they talk about moving to a colo instead of cloud, and they saved – they went from $36,000 a year, and they had every detail broke down from the server cost. They even included trip times to the data center in there as part of the cost. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a – A full TOC. It's a full TOC here, and uh, they brought it down to 20000 a year. So wow. sixteen, I think it was sixteen thousand dollars a year in savings, and they even put in there. This includes every five years buying new network equipment and every three years upgrading servers. Like they broke down all of that stuff mm. in there, and having hot spares and uh, you know all the other things you may need when you're running your own rack. To you know, like a hard drive went bad, but no one's able to go to the data center till tomorrow. But we can swap it with one of the hot spares. Like they. There's some real – it's a good, enlightening look. I want to actually reach out to them and see if I can interview some of them talking about – they do a lot of that type of calculation stuff. They think yeah. more in depth about it at scale, which is pretty cool. I mean, you're talking – their website needs that much a year, which is also impressive. Like, they get that many hits on their website and forums that mm. <laughs> they're spending nice. $36,000 a year when they were on Amazon. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's the last I have for the news. You got anything, Tony? Oh, you know, unfortunately, with missing my phone and not being able to get on my computer, I wasn't much, sure you've been out. So yeah, I mean, I, I heard from a few other podcasts uh, about a few things, and but I wasn't able to dig into it. And by this point, it's kind of old news. Yeah, so I, I don't want to. That's yeah. why I put a, I put a bunch of links together here for you. So. <laughs> you didn't send me the year show notes. Oh, I did not send me the show notes. It's okay. Right. I, and then I actually have a project I'm going to be starting today. So oh, cool. we got to wrap this up. Yeah. Not a problem. All right. Um, Did you get music or are we skipping the music today? Uh, we skipped it last time. I won't lie. Yeah. No, I heard that. It's all right. Yeah, let's skip it one more time. And okay. then when we're all together next time, then we'll have some music. You know, let us know. Listener feedback. Let us know. Do you yeah. do you like the music? We've been doing it for a long time. I don't know. Is it time for a change? Do you like it? Dislike it? Do you, you look forward to it every week when Tony comes up with it? Because the rest of us don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> let us know on that. We're, we're looking for some feedback on that. So, Yeah, let us know. 
All right. And I think that's it. All right. So it's been a, a quick show. Yeah. Uh, but and Tony's uh, project's not Linux based; it's physical labor. Yeah, I've got it. <laughs> it's really hot, and he wants to get started. <laughs> yeah, rip out my uh, my back patio, ten inch concrete patio. So it's gonna be a lot of. He needs to use a jackhammer, though. Yeah, yeah, got to pick up the jackhammer and get that going today. You should time lapse it. Yeah, you can borrow my time lapse if you want. <laughs> oh, that's actually not a bad idea. One. I'd I, love it. I don't it's just sitting in a box over there. So I think that'd be fun. All right. <laughs> All right. So you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. Uh, this was episode 279. Uh, oh, hold on. I got to scroll to the top. Ethereal before shark. Yeah. Uh, this is Tony Bemis. And Tom Lawrence. See you next time. Night. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can... Bite my 8-bit metal ass! That's bite with a Y. <laughs>